So a question. If this morning you happen to be the son or a daughter of a father, would you raise your hand? <laughs> a few of you had to think about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah, you all qualify. Okay. All right. So here's, here's a verse to keep in mind. I'm going to start it and you finish it for me with that thought in mind about a father. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Right, okay, so you were raised in church, you know. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God is our Father, so that would make this the Father's Day, right? Because He's made every day. So this is the day that our Father has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How cool would it be if on Father's Day the dad gave the gifts and we received them? You're going to see in Hebrews 9 this morning that your father has an amazing gift that he gives us on Father's Day, his day that he has made. Well, let me just step back with you just for a moment to Hebrews. We've been talking about um, who Jesus is, that he's better, and this comparison through this entire study of Hebrews is what is Jesus better than? Well, in the last couple of weeks, we saw that Jesus is better because he sits at God's right hand. And in the last two weeks, we've seen that he's better because he has a heavenly sanctuary. And then last week, we saw he's better because he purifies your conscience. Matter of fact, here's where we left off in verse 14. Jesus offered himself and he purified our conscience as a result of him offering himself. So this morning what you're going to see is he's not only purified our conscience if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but you also get something from him as a result of having a purified conscience, something that's been promised to us. The very reason why we have the hope, the reason that we have this hope that's within us. People look at us and wonder, why do you have the hope? Well, there's a reason that you're going to see this morning that you have this hope, something that's been promised. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. You'll see the verses up on the screen if you didn't bring a Bible with you, but know that there's some in the pew racks. And if you don't own a Bible, in the back of the auditorium when you leave today, there's some free Bibles back there on the table. Be sure and take one with you when you leave. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word. Let's pick it up at verse 15. It says this, Therefore, He, meaning Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Sounds like a really complicated verse. Let me break it down for you. This, this thought, therefore, or for the reason, if your Bible is NASB, is reaching back to the things that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. He's reaching back to what he's previously stated, and at the same time, he's looking forward. Therefore, because of what we stated, Jesus is doing something. He's mediating this new covenant. Why? He's doing it for a reason. He says it right there. So that the called receive their inheritance. Who's the called? Well, immediately your mind starts thinking, wow, this guy's dipping his toe into predestination. But just for a moment, he is. So, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. This, this concept of election. Those who are called should reveal some things to us. And I'll tell you this morning, this concept of predestination and election, God's calling most people never stop to really think about it, but it's all the way through Scripture. Before I get into that, though, look with me closely at verse 15 where you see it says you have a promised inheritance. Do you notice that it focuses on the word eternal? Promised eternal inheritance. He did that in verse 12. 
And then he did it again in verse 14. And now it comes up in verse 15, emphasizing eternal. Why? Because these are the people who are the Hebrews who have received this letter. And they're familiar with the Old Testament system. And under the Old Testament system, God's blessings were temporal. If you obeyed, God blessed. So you do what God wanted you to, and He would bless the earth. Rain, bumper crops, your money is protected, your health was protected. God said, I'll hem you in on all sides. I'll protect you from your enemies. Under the Old Testament covenant, that was true for the nation of Israel. But if you disobey me, the gloves come off. There's no protection. So you obey me, you get my blessing. You disobey me, you don't get my blessing. Well, that's, that's very much temporal blessing from God. But we're told that our inheritance is eternal. Therefore, it doesn't go away. It's not temporal. That's why he's focusing on this. So, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve this morning, I have confidence in Jesus because what he's given me is eternal. It doesn't go away. Do you hear that? We have this confidence. So since Jesus accomplished an eternal redemption for you, you and I share in an eternal inheritance. That means God's working an eternal strategy. Is that consistent with the Bible? Is that consistent with the Bible? I mean, it is. God said from the foundations of the world, even before the earth was formed, He's laying this plan. He's laying this strategy. God has these things for our purpose. He's executing a plan. Now, let me just come back to this concept of election just for a moment because it really sets up where we're going. In the New Testament, we're really familiar with the concept, even if we don't understand it, that God calls people to himself, that it's of him. So he uses this phrase in verse 15, those who are called, and it reminds us, first of all, of something profound. It's validating. It's God's initiative. It's not Mark who did it, right? It's not you. God didn't hear you calling to him. He called to you. So it's clear to us it's God's will to bless his people with something, something you can't get from any other place, only from your Father, only from your eternal Father, and no one else can give it to you. So let's come to this phrase, he redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant in verse 15. Did you ever stop and wonder about the Old Testament saints? I'm thinking all the way back to the time of Abraham and Daniel. Jonah, even Adam. Do you ever stop and think about how could they also be the elect of God? People wonder how ancient followers could be saved because we're told salvation's only through Jesus, right? And these people lived before Jesus, so how could they be saved also? Look with me on the screen. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when you combine that thought with the fact that the Old Covenant didn't really take away sin, it just covered it over. And then we know, according to Ezekiel 18, anybody who sins is going to die in their sin. That's kind of scary stuff. You start thinking about Daniel, Abraham, Jonah, Ruth, Naomi, all those people who lived in the ancient, ancient, ancient days. Well, salvation's only in Jesus. How do they get saved? When we know the only way to stand before God is to have the penalty of sin paid. Well, that would make us think it's all on Jesus. So how does this word redeem fit in there? 
So he drops this bomb right in the middle of the verse with this word redeem. I want you to see the Greek word for it on the screen. It's this concept of a polytrosis. And here's what it means. In the first century, it was common for people to own slaves. And when they owned and they bartered and traded slaves, it didn't matter what nationality you were, you could find yourself in slavery as a result of a war. Well, they bought and sold slaves freely. And so when someone went to the auction blocks and they saw an individual that they wanted to own, this action of a polytrosis took place. They identified the individual. They said, that's the individual I want. And therefore, they paid the ransom price to the degree that they actually delivered the person. So here's what's going on. They're setting this person free, and that person is able to say farewell to the bonds, the things that held them, the chains in the case of a slave. Well, in the case of the Old Testament believers, those who were following God, Jesus' death redeemed those individuals also. I want to show you how this plays out. They're saved on the same basis as believers today. After Jesus died, they received what had only been a promise, a promise from their father, something that God had given. It was a guaranteed promise, but until the death of Jesus, it was an unfulfilled promise. So Jesus' death was so powerful, it carried out this capacity to save retroactively people who had died before Jesus. This is all part of God's eternal strategy, all part of his commitment to save the world. Let me show you Romans just before you tune out on me here. I want you to hear this. Romans 3, verse 24. This is Paul writing. We are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Would you agree that God is patient? Okay, that's one of the characteristics. God says, I'm incredibly patient. And so he reminded Moses of that on Mount Sinai. He said, I'm patient. So when he saw a heart of faith, let's use Abraham, for example. He saw Abraham's heart, that he was faithful, that he obeyed the things that God had called him to do. God passed over his sins until the true sacrifice was made. In other words, Old Testament saints were credited with the future work of Jesus. Now, why has he done this? He's very subtly introduced the concept of the death of Jesus. And it's done in what looks like a complex way, but he's done it for this particular reason. The death of a Messiah is a stumbling block to people even in 2014 today. The death of the Messiah, Jesus, was a stumbling block to the Jews and still is today. Because in their theology, in their neat little picture of God, they didn't have room in their theology for the death of a Messiah. It's a truth that they ignored, even though it's littered throughout God's Word. So what he does, and it comes very quickly now in these last remaining verses, he shows us three reasons why Jesus had to die. And if you've ever struggled before with why did Jesus have to die, it really comes out strong in these next verses. First of all, here's the first one. A will demands a death. This will make sense in just a minute. Number two, forgiveness demands blood. And number three, judgment demands a substitute. So let's go to the first verse that shows that a will demands death, and I'll help you understand that. Verse 16 says this, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. 
He's pointing out the obvious. It's necessary for the death of the author of the will for the will to come into effect. So if we put it in more modern language, let's say one of you is the recipient of John D. Rockefeller's estate. Uh, John Rockefeller, wealthiest man known to have lived in the history of the world, probably more wealthy than Solomon. At his death, $600 billion. It far surpasses anything that's known today. You could take Bill Gates and Warren Buffett together and they wouldn't come close. So you have the wealthiest man in history who leaves a will, and he leaves a will very specifically to a recipient of his will. And so John D. Rockefeller retires with $600 billion in his bank account, at the age of 56, you would too, right? <laughs> that kind of money, you're going to retire at 40. But at 56, he retires. When people are dying in the 1800s, in their 50s, no one expects the author of that will to live another 40 years. John D. Rockefeller lives to age 96. The recipient of his will never realized Never, I mean, it never actually happened for him being the recipient. He never realized it until his dad died, John Rockefeller Jr. That's the point that's being made here. And until the person who wrote the will dies, you're not going to get it. The will doesn't take effect until the person who made it dies. So until that time, the provisions of the will are only a promise. They're only a hope. So if you're living in the Old Testament times and you're told that there's something coming in the future, you're hoping in it, but it never was realized during your lifetime, it's just future. Here's what the author is saying. God, your Father in heaven, gave you a will, a legacy, an inheritance, which this inheritance plan was written before time, before the earth ever even existed, in the form of a covenant from your Father. And he wants you to be the recipients of it. But the will demands a death. And so that's the case he's making in verse 16 and 17. Let's go to verse 18 because the next point is the forgiveness demands blood. Verse 18, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood with both, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, here's the verse I want to focus on. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus' death is not an option. Under God's, under God's principles, the shedding of blood was required. It wasn't something God happened to prefer. Forgiveness demands blood. As a matter of fact, throughout the Bible, every time you see blood used symbolically, it's referring to death. So here's what he's saying. Look, Moses himself, he inaugurated the Old Covenant with blood. Now, it's really hard for us to grasp in 2014 how bloody the sacrificial system was. Hey, just to get grotesque for a moment, if you can bear that. On one day, recorded by a historian by the name of Josephus in 38 ADs, the Passover day, there were 240,000 lambs slain in one day inside the city of Jerusalem at the temple altar for the sins of the people. 
because God commanded a sacrifice. Can you imagine how the rivers and the streets and the valleys spread and smelled with blood? It's really difficult to get our mind around it. Why did God command that? Because the blood was a reminder of sin and death and everything associated with it. So what does Jesus do? The night before he's crucified, he's meeting with his friends in the upper room and he holds up the cup. And the cup, he says, this is my blood, which is going to be poured out for all of you. And with it, I'm going to inaugurate something new. Look with me, Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's Jesus doing there? He's ratifying the new covenant in his own blood. So what this tells me, church, is I can't enter into God's presence by being religious. I can't enter into God's presence by praying enough. I can't enter into God's presence by reading my Bible enough. I can't enter into God's presence by thinking good thoughts or even giving away enough money. I can only enter into God's presence through the death and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the truth of Scripture. This covenant that he's made is one in which God lays down the terms, and it's not open to negotiation. God set the rules. He said the soul that sins will die. That means the reverse of it is the soul that is saved is saved through the death and the blood. There's no exceptions. There's no substitute. As I study this and I look at God's word, I'm constantly overwhelmed and reminded forgiveness is a costly, costly, costly thing. It required the blood of Jesus to be poured out for us. And there's this beautiful reminder in the book of John, chapter 3. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. To that degree, God loves us so great. So here's where the misunderstanding is today in our culture. Most people believe that God's great love is so great for us that He'll overlook our sins. The truth of the Bible is God's great love doesn't cause him to overlook your sin. It caused him to send the only payment possible for our sin. Let's move on. Verse 23 says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. It was necessary. If you haven't circled anything in your Bible yet this morning, I would circle that in verse 23. It was necessary, meaning there was no other way. He makes it really clear the blood must be shed. And here's what he's stressing. While atonement blood was really important here on planet Earth during that sacrificial system days, it's even more important where things really matter in heaven where he says better sacrifices are needed. So in verse 23, he starts talking about the copies of the things in heaven. And he refers to the things in heaven as the original, meaning the things on earth were just kind of a sketch. So last week we looked at the the lampstand and the table of showbread and, and the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told that those are copies of the originals in heaven. So if it was necessary for the copies on earth to have sacrifices, how much more so the things in heaven. And that should make your mind do loops. Wait, wait, wait. Why would the things in heaven need a better sacrifice 
what's going on there? What is he referring to? I don't want to blow by this. I just want you to hear it and vegetate on it for just a moment. We can come back to it another day. Where did the original sin occur, church? Somebody say it really loud. The garden, okay. So typically, we typically think of the first sin in the Garden of Eden. But if we study our Bible really closely, we see the very first sin, the original sin, was with Lucifer in the presence of God, in the Holy of Holies. And that blows my mind. That Lucifer, the star of the morning, the cherubim, the one who covered the throne, we're told, said, I will be as God and caused one-third of the angels in heaven to rebel against God in war and thereby brought sin into heaven. And we see this amazing statement within Hebrews, and it occurs other places in Scripture, that Jesus brought a better sacrifice to the heavenly holy of holies, not just purifying us here on earth, purifying our conscience, but also in the presence of God where Satan had rebelled. Now, to, to what degree? Because he says, how much better? A better sacrifice. To what degree better? To the degree that God highly exalted Jesus and gave him a name that was above every name. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Look at this very closely. 2, 9. It says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, God is immeasurably satisfied with what Jesus did. And so the very reason we come to the Father through Jesus is not because of some ritual. We don't just say in Jesus' name because it's wrote into our memory. It's because God is not satisfied with us. Did that sink in? See, God is not satisfied with what we bring to the table. He's not satisfied with us. That's why Isaiah wrote, my righteousness, it's like filthy rags. Paul echoed that in Romans 3. He said, my righteousness, it's like dirty paper towels. I got nothing. My greatest works don't measure up. See, Jesus is the only one who satisfies the Father. And therefore, no one comes to God, our Father, except through Jesus. Now, here's a great mistake that's made in today's society. The concept goes like this. God accepts us just the way we are. I want you to know that is entirely unbiblical. You won't find that in Scripture. God does not accept us just the way we are. We come to Jesus just the way we are. And we confess, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of you as a Savior because I bring nothing worthwhile in myself. And Jesus doesn't present us to the Father just as we are. He presents us because He's our great high priest in His righteousness. Dr. Leon Morris spoke to this, just two sentences I wanted you to see. It says this, we are totally unpresentable. Otherwise, we could present ourselves When Jesus presents us to his Father, he presents us in himself as he is. So, New Covenant believers this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, 
you have an amazing reality, this gift from your Father. Jesus, according to verse 24, appears in the presence of God on your behalf. And this is absolutely beautiful to grasp. He ushers us into the very presence of God. And when we're ushered into the presence of God, God sees you. He sees me through the righteousness of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So let's go into the last two verses. Verse 25 says this, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So I just go into one sentence there. Jesus has appeared once. See, if you're making this list of all the things that Jesus is better by, and maybe you've been doing this since week one of Hebrews, here's another one. Jesus is better because he only needed to make one sacrifice, only one time. And if it had not been complete, he'd have to suffer over and over and over again since Adam first sinned. Now, praise God, his sacrifice doesn't have to be completed or repeated, does it? It's finished and it's complete once for all time. So here we go. Number one, a will demanded death. Number two, forgiveness demands blood. Here's the last one. Number three, judgment demands a substitute. Verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Everybody's got to die, right? We don't like to think about it, especially when we're 18, 19, 20, 25 years of age. I remember when I was like 18 and in flight school, and I was thinking, this is so cool. I love life so much. Jesus, please don't return now. I mean, when you're young, you just want to live your life out, right? But we know death is coming at some point. We just hope it's a long ways out there. But according to God's word, we all have to die. See, death is an appointment. And it's one appointment everybody's got to keep. You can't call in and cancel. Nobody's figured out how to get into God's appointment book and erase their name from it. It just hasn't happened since the foundation of the world. Everybody dies. But here's what's more important. Death is much more serious than death. Because according to verse 27... After death comes judgment. Now, that's not a popular thought, right? Most people in our society, I would say around the world, don't want to be reminded of that. That there's not only a death appointment, there's a judgment appointment. And it's an appointment with God. Now, here's what's not popular. Mankind is accountable to God. Not popular, right? People, people don't want to be reminded of that. Why? Because we know. We know in our core. We're fallen. That's why people don't want to stand before God, because they know they've got sin on them. But here's the beauty of this morning. God, in His eternal plan, decided that if I would respond to his call, that judgment that I would incur one day doesn't have to land on me because he put it on Jesus. Jesus took my judgment. 
Jesus took your judgment. How could he do that? Well, according to God's word, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now, you know that story, but I want you to be reminded that's not the end of the story. See, the, the movie is just part one. There's a sequel coming, and it's going to be a worldwide release. Everybody's going to know because we're told in verse 28, he's going to appear a second time. Now, what this writer of Hebrews is doing is he's helping them to reach back into very familiar language. When they thought of their high priest going into the Holy of Holies, there's something they wanted more than anything else. Think back with me two weeks, maybe even to last weekend if you were here. We talked about the tabernacle and the high priest who went into the holy place and then inside to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he would sprinkle the blood. And I told you at that time, he was not to talk in there at all. No noise was to be made. The only thing people on the other side of the wall could hear was the jingle of bells, reminding them that he's still alive. He hasn't died. He's in the presence of God, and he hasn't died. And if they didn't hear the bells, they grabbed a rope and they pulled him out because nobody could go into the Holy of Holies. And when the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies and appeared a second time, Everybody gave a collective. (gasps) He lived. What he presented was accepted by God. So he's causing them to reach back into that very familiar imagery when he says he will appear a second time. Our great high priest who has gone into the Holy of Holies, who is at the right hand of God, will appear a second time. And you notice that your text says this is not going to be concerning with sin. Because sin was dealt with at the first coming. There's a reason he's coming back, church. The reason he's coming back is to deliver those who are eagerly waiting for him. So if those Old Testament saints who were under the law eagerly waited for their earthly high priest to come out of the Holy of Holies, how much more so should we be eagerly waiting for the great high priest? And his return. And when he comes back, your salvation is going to be complete. You may think it's complete now, but it's not complete. It's finished, but it's not complete because Jesus hasn't returned yet. So let's revisit those three things again. A will demands death. Forgiveness demands blood. And judgment demands a substitute. So I'm just going to say those one more time, and I'm going to ask you to throw out the name of the one individual that you know of that can meet those requirements. Number one, a will demands death. Jesus, Jesus. it's a Jesus answer, right? Number two, forgiveness demands blood. Who's that? And number three, judgment demands a substitute. Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. That's why he's got the name that's above every name. He's the only one. That's why Jesus is better, church. Let me pray with you that God will lock these truths in your heart. Father, for any individual here right now who's struggling with these truths, I ask that you would help them through the power of your Holy Spirit to see that there is no middle ground and there's no gray area. You are extraordinarily clear. Thank you for the truth that you've shown us this morning. 
For those who name the name of Jesus and are believers, Father, and who, who have been called by you and have responded, I ask first that you help us to walk in humility with a reminder of these truths from this morning. To remember the great price that was paid for us. Well, my Father, I, w- I would ask on this day that you made that you would translate that humility into boldness and that we would take this truth and be willing to share it with others that we know who desperately need to hear this. Father, I ask for your blessing upon these people for having been here and, and hearing your word of God and praising you in music. Send us out now with your blessing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.